chapter 5, verses 12 through 28, we are uh, closing out our study of 1 Thessalonians uh, this evening. Next week, Lord willing, what I'd like to do, uh, I thought about going, through, going on through 2 Thessalonians, which certainly would be a, a profitable study. However, it, it really covers some of the same themes that we already have looked at in 1 Thessalonians. However, what I would like to do is take a look, uh, particularly uh, next week, at 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, on uh, the, the one Paul refers to there as the man of lawlessness, and talks about that uh, passage that has given rise to all kinds of controversy and consternation among believers. Uh, take a look at that passage particularly, because it stands out. It really is kind of at the center of Second Thessalonians, and uh, so Lord willing, we'll take a look at that passage next week. Tonight, we are looking at First Thessalonians chapter 5, uh, verse 12, through the end of the chapter. Hear the word of God. We ask you, brothers, to respect those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you, and to esteem them very highly in love because of their work. Be at peace among yourselves. And we urge you, brothers, admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with them all. See that no one repays anyone evil for evil, but always seek to do good to one another and to everyone. Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Do not quench the spirit, do not despise prophecies, but test everything, hold fast what is good, abstain from every form of evil. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely, and may your whole spirit And soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. Brothers, pray for us. Greet all the brothers with a holy kiss. I put you under oath before the Lord to have this letter read to all the brothers. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. As we turn our attention to it this evening, we uh, pray that you will uh, enlighten our minds and uh, guide our wills, warm our hearts with the truth of your word. We thank you for this letter, the privilege we've had to look at it over these last months. And we pray uh, that once again we would uh, prosper by our thinking on it together. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. In a letter in which Paul was in many ways focusing on a church uh, that was early on in his ministry, as we've said, this probably is the first letter of Paul's that we have, uh, the earliest letter of Paul's that we have to one of the churches, uh, particularly one that he founded. Paul was concerned about any number of things in the church, uh, most of them positive, most encouraging, really no particular... uh, uh, severe problems or errors or heresies that he has to address in this church, uh, much of it focusing, as we've seen, on, uh, on living in light of the return of Christ. And, and while chapter 4, first part of chapter 5, deal with that specifically, we've noticed that in each of these chapters, Paul touches on that theme of the return of Christ. Well, Paul wraps up the letter 
by addressing uh, these believers, people he knew, as well as no doubt others he had not met who had been added to the church as their faith and the gospel had grown there in the town of Thessalonica, he uh, addresses them as a family. He addresses them as uh, a church in terms of their interactions with one another uh, on something of a mundane level. Uh, because as much as we think of the churches in the New Testament maybe as being on a higher plane, uh, we know that's not the case. The churches were made up of sinners, uh, redeemed to be sure, but sinners nonetheless. And uh, in many ways, people just like you, just like me, there was nothing particularly um, elevated uh, about these churches, though they were planted by and ministered to by apostles. Uh, you know, if you've read them at all, the letters of Paul, that these churches, uh, as any church in our own day, could find itself struggling with conflict, uh, with theological error, uh, with uh, false prophets, uh, and problems that we read about in the church today. With grievous sin, think of the church in Corinth and the kinds of things that Paul had to address there. And so what he writes here is is somewhat mundane and, and really has to do with most of church life, with what goes on uh, in, the, in the day-to-day and week-to-week life of the church. Now, Paul's been concerned about their relationships to each other throughout the letter, not just here. We see that in, uh, in chapter 4, verses uh, 9 and 10, uh, concerning brotherly love. You have no need for anyone to write to you. You're, you yourselves have been taught by God to love one another. Um, chapter 4, verse 18, therefore encourage or comfort one another with these words. So all along, Paul has had the idea uh, in mind that they're ministering to each other, that they are interacting with each other. Uh, but here at the end, he, he makes a final appeal to them in their relationships to one another, uh, which really, when you get down to it, is where holiness is found. Holiness, uh, godliness, uh, is certainly found within in terms of our own inner life, our thought life, our, our own ongoing conversation within ourselves. Uh, but really, godliness, holiness is, is found primarily in, in relationship, in interaction with other people, or not found, as the case may be. But it's there that we find our uh, Christ-likeness, uh, fruit of the Spirit, put to the test, It is in relationships, uh, whether it's friend or husband or wife or children or neighbor or co-worker, that we find those things perhaps uh, demonstrated and exemplified the most. And so Paul is addressing here the relationships in this church family. And he writes about three essential aspects of, of the local church in terms of relationship. First of all, he writes to them about the pastorate and, uh, you could take that in one of two ways. One, you could take it, for example, referring to me as a teaching elder and a pastor in the church. But I think, in the second way, might be more appropriate in a Presbyterian context of elders who function as shepherds over the church, of which I am one, uh, but only one in our church of, of eight, uh, uh, seven ruling elders. And uh, so the first, he addresses the, the leadership, the pastorate, the shepherding uh, leadership of the church in verses 12 and 13. We ask you, brothers, to respect those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you and to esteem them very highly in love because of their work. Be at peace 
among yourselves. Now, if you read between the lines, does Paul say this to them? Because maybe there were those who didn't. Uh, in the church, there is always, uh, given as we are, uh, the tendency to be creatures of extremes, uh, the tendency in church history to swing from clericalism on the one hand to anti-clericalism on the other. And clericalism, uh, where, where the ordained clergy basically are the church, run the church, uh, do everything in the church, and the so-called laity serve the function of filling the otherwise empty pews and uh, uh, perhaps serving in an assistant capacity and perhaps, you know, certainly uh, contributing the cash to make the church go. But basically, it's the preacher's show. Uh, that, uh, to the other end of the spectrum, which is anti-clericalism, and you've seen that in the history of the church. Uh, I certainly see that in the world today as well, uh, where you take the idea that every member is, uh, every Christian is uh, involved to minister within the body in, in one way or another, a more formal or, or more informal, more structured, less structured way, but that we all are given at least one spiritual gift, some function that God has, has for us to fulfill. And taking that to the point of saying, well, well, if this is true, then we're all ministers who needs any kind of distinct ordained clergy. Well, uh, you find that office appointed and, and established in, in the New Testament. And so the truth, as is often the case when there's a tendency to go to one extreme or the other, uh, is, is found in the middle. We need both. Uh, we don't need clericalism or anti. We need uh, a biblical model of the church. Now, was that what was being challenged here? We don't know. Maybe Paul just felt like they needed to hear some of this. Maybe he was responding to certain problems in the church. But he addresses the church. We ask you, brothers, and he's not talking to the leadership here, he's talking to the congregation, to, and it basically he calls for three things, to respect those who labor, or describes them in three ways, who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you. Now, as you've seen in this letter, Paul encourages them to work hard, uh, to, uh, back in chapter 4, verse 11, to work with your hands, live properly before outsiders. Uh, later in 2 Thessalonians, uh, chapter 3, uh, verse 10, even when we were with you, we would give this command, if anyone's not willing to work, let him not eat. We hear some among you walk in idleness, not busy at work, but busy bodies. Paul valued hard work, and he certainly valued hard work among those who served with him uh, or after him in the work of evangelism and shepherding of the church. In fact, the word that Paul uses here, those who labor among you, was one that typically would be used of manual labor. Uh, it, it had the idea of muscles, sore muscles, and sweat. Uh, Paul used it referring to the labor of the farmer, but he also used it of, of his own work and others in ministry. In fact, it's the same word that uh, he uses back in chapter 2, verse 9. For you remember, brothers, our labor and toil. We worked night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you while we proclaim to you the gospel of God. Paul referring certainly to his tent-making ministry, but also to his efforts in the um, proclamation of the gospel. And so those who labor, the word has the idea of hard work. Um, and the ministry is hard work, if rightly done. Uh, I remember reading something somewhere that said that the ministry is not an easy job, and woe to those who make it so. Um, 
you know, believe it or not, I don't just work on Sundays. Um, and you know that. Uh, that's the common joke. Um, but it is. It's laborious. Study is, is wearying. Uh, and sometimes just uh, the, the efforts of pastoral work, uh, and I speak not for my, only for myself, but also for fellow elders, can be draining, can be tiring. Uh, pastoral work, properly done, is, is hard work. It is labor. So he refers to that, those who are over you in the Lord, um, the point there being not uh, authoritarianism, but over you in the sense of the shepherd being over the flock. He, his purpose in being over them is to serve them, to feed them, to protect them, uh, in a sense to be at their disposal. Uh, and that's the idea that Paul has here. And admonish you, to lovingly admonish. Uh, the word is used almost invariably, in other, other than here, in an ethical context. The point being here to warn the people of God against bad ethics, against bad behavior. Uh, to warn them uh, about sin in their lives, if, if necessary, to discipline them uh, from sin in their lives. And so, while Paul's addressing the church, he indirectly uh, gives instruction to those who have uh, shepherding responsibilities in the church, that they are to labor diligently, uh, that they are over the flock and accountable for that oversight and uh, responsible to admonish those under their care. Now, that's almost beside the point, although it's there. His point is to encourage the congregation in its attitude toward those who serve in this function. Uh, Verse 12, we ask you, brothers, to respect those who labor among you, verse 13, and to esteem them very highly in love because of their work. Now, that knife cuts both ways. I think that also implies that those who hold a shepherding role in the church, whether teaching elder or ruling elder, should be respect of all and should uh, make every effort to be worthy of esteem uh, and not make it hard. To, for the congregation to show respect or to esteem. But nevertheless, um, the point is the congregation here is not to look down upon or to denigrate or to make life difficult for those who serve in the shepherding capacity over them, but rather to show respect toward them because of their office and hopefully character and to esteem them very highly in love because of their work, because of the, the, the role that they have in feeding and protecting the sheep, and he ends with what I think is a telling verse, be at peace among yourselves. And I believe that yourself there, he's referring to congregation and leadership, the shepherds of the church. Uh, some of you know I've served on the shepherding committee of North Georgia Presbytery and serve now on the, the shepherding committee of Georgia Foothills Presbytery. And um, over the period of time I've done that, it's been interesting to see the kinds of things come up, but all too often what comes up is, is some kind of conflict either among the leadership between the teaching elder and the ruling elders or uh, between the pastor and maybe the elders and the congregation. And uh, you can see what happens, and typically there's, there's sin on both sides. There's a need for repentance. Uh, on, on both sides of that equation. And uh, Paul's words here are very telling. Be at peace among yourselves. Uh, I think referring there to that relationship. 
And so the first relationship or, or dynamic in the church that he addresses is that of the pastorate or the shepherding leaders of the church to the congregation and the congregation to them. There's a second uh, aspect of it that he, he describes here, and that has to do with the congregation, the body itself, their relationship uh, among one another. Look at verse 14. And we urge you, brothers, now notice that he began verse 12 that way, we ask you, brothers, referring to the congregation, and again, and we urge you, brothers, to whom is he speaking? Well, he's speaking, I would assume, to the same people, to the, to the body of the congregation. But notice what he says to them. Admonish the idle. Encourage the faint-hearted. Help the weak. Be patient with them all. Yes, it is the responsibility of the pastor, the elders of the church, to carry out these roles. But um, Paul makes it plain that that's the responsibility of all of us as Christians in, in a body of believers in the church. That we all have the responsibility of ministering to each other in these ways of admonishing, in this case, those who, as he said, are idle and are not busy, but busy bodies, uh, of encouraging those who are afraid or fearful or downtrodden, helping those who are weak and showing patience with all of them. Uh, it's telling, too, that Paul throws that one in, uh, encouraging patience in, in dealing with people. Uh, see that no one repays anyone evil for evil, but seek uh, always seek to do good to one another and to everyone. Uh, echoes of what he would, or, or adumbrations, we might say, foreshadowing of what he would later write in uh, Romans chapter 12, of not returning evil for evil, but good, and leaving room for the, for the judgment of God, but showing e- uh, good to people and not evil. Um, and so in these ways, Paul is addressing the church, encouraging certainly the leadership, but also the believers themselves to fulfill the role they have for one another. Uh, it answers a question that echoes down over the centuries and over the chapters of the Scripture. Am I my brother's keeper? And in the church, certainly that answer is yes. We are responsible for one another. Uh, Matthew 18 says, you know, if a brother's in sin, sin against you, or you have something against them, go to that person and speak to them. Now, certainly there may be times uh, when it would be appropriate to uh, call on an elder or even the session as a whole. Uh, but the first response is you yourself. Uh, as a brother, as a sister in Christ, to go to a person, to admonish them, to encourage them, uh, whatever the, the situation might call for. And so Paul, Paul speaks to the, the fellowship as a whole. Well, then finally, he speaks to them uh, in terms of their relationship on the vertical, really toward the Lord himself, uh, in terms of their worship. And we see this in verse 16 and following. These words are plural. He's speaking to all of them, but it, it, it seems to indicate he's speaking to them as they come together, perhaps in the, in the context of corporate worship. Now, you could say these would be, at least some of them would be true individually, but it seems that Paul's intent here is that they're true of them as a group when they come together. What does he say to them? Well, he tells them to rejoice always. Um, not so much to be joyful, But to rejoice, uh, we might add, as he uh, puts it in Philippians, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. He later wrote to the church in Philippi. Uh, Joy isn't something that necessarily 
<clears throat> shows up on command, rejoicing in the Lord we can do, uh, regardless of the circumstances, regardless of what we might be going through, because we're rejoicing in the Lord. We're rejoicing in who he is. We're rejoicing in our salvation in him. We're rejoicing that even our afflictions are in his hands, under his control, and that ultimately, uh, at Christ's return, uh, when we are with him, uh, every, everything will be made right. And so we know that calamity, we know that heartache, we know that death uh, doesn't have the last word. And so we may not always feel joyful, but we can always rejoice. Pray without ceasing. It's interesting if you go through Paul's letters to read the various ways that he says he prays for uh, these churches. And remember this morning, we were looking at his, his calling God as his witness as to how he prays for the churches under his care. Pray without ceasing. Um, could have the idea of praying continuously and continually. The words don't mean the same thing. One has the idea of going on without a break, without, uh, without stopping. The other has the idea that it's something that keeps happening again and again and again. And certainly those should be true in our prayer lives. <clears throat> there will be times when we um, pray together, we have our heads bowed, our eyes are closed. But we should always, I think, live consciously in the presence of God. Certainly always have a sense that God is, is with us, that he is watching us, a sense that we can uh, speak to him inwardly at any time. You can do that when you're driving down Interstate 85. I would not recommend the formal bow your head, close your eyes prayer time when you're driving down Interstate 85. Uh, is, is what Paul is saying here practical? Yes. It doesn't mean we'll always formally be in prayer, but it does mean that we are always mindful of our Heavenly Father, mindful that we live before Him, mindful that He is with us, and mindful that we live constantly in, uh, in, in dependence upon Him and looking to Him for grace. Uh, verse uh, 18, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. There's a second statement here uh, of the will of God. You'll recall that the first one was back in chapter 4. Verse 3, for this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality. That's the will of God. You want to know God's will for you? There it is. Well, here's another instance of the will of God. You want to know God's will for you? God's will for you is that you should give thanks in all circumstances. Not for all circumstances, but in all. And again, like rejoicing, um, not always easy, and yet in the Lord, certainly possible giving thanks, even in pain that the Lord rules and that he is making all things right. This is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. And then some verses 19, 20, 22, uh, just rapid-fire admonitions that seem to be centered around God's word, God, uh, around God's truth. Do not quench the spirit. Do not despise prophecies. But test everything, hold fast what is good, abstain from every form of evil. Now, their circumstances are a little different from ours. I said, to the, if Paul were to say to them, please turn to First uh, Thessalonians, that wouldn't mean anything to them. Paul said to them, 
Turn to Romans 8. Rome. Rome. What does this have to do with Rome? Uh, They wouldn't know what he was talking about. What we take so much for granted, they didn't have, namely the New Testament. They didn't have it recorded here, and uh, certainly we are dependent on the Spirit, but not for new revelation. But at their time, uh, Paul is saying, do not quench the Spirit, which I think refers not just to receiving truth, but their behavior, grieving the Spirit through dissension. But in this context, do not despise prophecies. In other words, don't, don't look down on uh, when the Spirit leads someone to utter something from the Lord that was uh, truth for them, that they were intended to hear. However, they were also not to accept everything anybody said with, uh, with a naive gullibility. Test everything. Uh, guide it, uh, be guided by the apostolic truth you do know. John, 1 John says, test the spirits. We don't just swallow what we hear, hook, line, and sinker. Uh, Hold fast what is good. Abstain from every form of evil. There was no end to the forms of evil in that day that were taught in the name of religion, that were taught as uh, somehow being sanctioned by or revealed by God. And so he's essentially here addressing the whole question of, of truth, of authority, and particularly... Uh, when someone spoke a word from the Lord, they were to uh, not write it off right away, but they were also to use discernment in what they accepted and what they listened to. Remember, I, I've got a book on preaching. I remember reading it, and he said something about he um, kind of discouraged preaching on the introduction of letters, Paul's letters, and on the conclusion of Paul's letters, because he said you don't look for a message in the salutation and in the closing. Well, normally that might be true, but maybe you've received a letter from someone and you actually scrutinized how they addressed you. You know, dear Kent, dear, what did she mean by that? You know, that kind of thing. Um, so sometimes we do look for at least something communicated in the greeting or maybe the conclusion. Uh, cordially yours, Anne. <sighs> okay, maybe not. Uh, sometimes we do pay attention, but certainly when we come to the scriptures, uh, and I'll have to ask their forgiveness later for uh, <laughs> mentioning them. Um, when it comes down to God's word, where we believe that every word is inspired by God and is there for a reason, certainly the meat of the teaching may not be found in the uh, greeting and the conclusion, but that doesn't mean that there's not truth to be gleaned in, in what is written. And so we look. At what is a really a wonderful benediction uh, that Paul gives. Uh, it has that uh, mysterious reference to spirit, soul, and body. Are we tripartite, uh, three parts, or are we merely two, soul as body and soul, or soul and spirit rather, the same thing? I think it would be wrong to take Paul here as teaching that we are body, soul, and spirit. Uh, I personally think that soul and spirit... Uh, largely overlap here and maybe a rhetorical flourish on Paul's part. I don't think he's uh, uh, teaching here on the nature of, of, of who we are as human beings. Uh, but a great benediction. May the God of peace himself sanctify you completely, and may your whole spirit, soul, and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus. I think he's just saying, may the Lord protect you and all of, all of who you are. He who calls you is faithful, and he will surely do it. 
Now, he, he prays essentially for their sanctification. He affirms God's faithfulness. Uh, all of these, just very briefly touching on these things. Uh, verse 25, asks for their prayers. Brother, pray for us. Paul always affirms how he prays for these churches to which he writes. He's Christians, uh, and very simply he's, here he says, brothers, pray for us. Um, tells them to greet each other. Greet all the brothers with a holy kiss, which... Uh, Again, certainly implies uh, close proximity, uh, even as they would have been together hearing this letter read, as the next verse indicates. Um, I'm not sure if it's J.B. Phillips' translation, uh, paraphrase, that says, greet one another with a holy handshake. I'm not sure. Maybe that's just something people came up with. The point in context, you know, this made sense. We might shake hands or give a hug or whatever. Uh, Verse 27 Spoke this morning about oaths and vows. I put you under oath before the Lord to have this letter read to all the brothers. Rather stern words there. Paul wanted this message read to the church. It was to be heard. Uh, what he was saying here, wishes it, not just wishes, requires his letter to be read and uh, then uh, expresses his desire to them for the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ to be uh, with them. Well, as we close out our study of this letter, um, it seems like there are two things that stand out that we need to take away with us. One is uh, the here and now practical, the interaction that we have as believers, those who have experienced the saving grace of Christ, uh, which, as Paul has really unfolded here tonight, uh, that we are certainly to strive for peace among one another, that we are to uh, do everything that we can to encourage one another, minister to each other, and serve each other here. But we also, as Paul indicates throughout this letter, don't want to lose sight of the fact that we really are otherworldly, that the kingdom of God, while it's here in the world, is not of the world, and we are awaiting the return of our king. We are awaiting that magnificent upheaval and transformation that that will bring about uh, when reality, as we have known it, will undergo an amazing and an astounding and a magnificent and wonderful change. And so even as we live here, even as we serve one another here, we are uh, looking forward to a day of much better things. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you have brought the kingdom into this world, and that we have the privilege of being citizens of it by your grace. But, Father, we do look forward to uh, the fullness of the kingdom. We do look forward to the day when sin and the misery that it causes and even death itself will be no more. And so, Father, we pray for grace to live as your church here in the world, even as we anticipate being your people in a new world, uh, new heavens, new earth. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.